And this group polarization thing is the reaction of a person in pain because just as much as you feel like, oh, maybe they don't really know me at all if mm-hmm. this is all they care about, they're also thinking, but I've, I've known you this way. Right. Why are you different? Different is painful for me. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Brian Peck here, sitting in for Ryan Bell this week. I'm excited to share a fascinating conversation about how we believe. We humans care a great deal about what we believe, but we're often unaware of the underlying conditions that give rise to our beliefs. On this episode, I talk with two of my close friends and trusted colleagues. Carolyn Golden is a clinical psychologist who, in addition to her clinical practice, teaches at Boise State. Carolyn's interest in how beliefs are formed led her to develop a new course for the university, The Psychology of Belief. James Connolly is also a clinical psychologist with an infectious curiosity about how our brains work and a fascination with why and how we believe. James is currently writing a book in which he explores the psychology of religious belief through the lens of his LDS background. Recently, James, Carolyn, and I spent some time together in St. George, Utah, catching up on our friendship, hiking through Zion National Park, and geeking out about psychology. I was able to capture one of our conversations to share with the Life After God community. I think you'll enjoy this discussion. Before we get into this episode, I want to thank Ryan for this opportunity to be a guest host on the podcast, and I want to thank you for listening and being part of the community. Leaving religion can be difficult, and receiving support through this transition can be the difference between getting stuck or thriving on the other side of faith. Ryan and I are excited to offer resources and content to help you through the deconversion process. Stay tuned for more information at the end of this episode. But for now, pull up a chair and join us around the kitchen table as we explore belief. Today I am meeting with two of my most favorite people in the whole world, um, Carolyn Golden and James Conley, both of whom are clinical psychologists. And uh, James is working on a book about belief and um, kind of drawing from his history in the Mormon church and just kind of why we believe what we believe in general. And Carolyn teaches a psychology of belief class. So I'm just really glad to be having this conversation with both of you today. Um, yeah, I think we'll talk about, uh, you know, why we believe what we, we, we believe, um, why it's challenging to no longer believe what we used to believe. And um, yeah, so maybe we'll start with you, James, like what is um, some of your experience with um, transitioning from one belief to the other? And So my uh, transition was, was uh, quite a long time ago and I have psychology probably to blame. So 
I had a, a really good social psychology professor, and uh, she showed us some of Elizabeth Loftus's work mm-hmm. uh, with children and how we can invent memories and how they're just like as if it, it really happened to us right. in all the ways that we, that we can measure and also showed us a James Randi clip mm. uh, on uh, how we can easily be tricked uh, in so many different ways. And so from that, that was what I remember as kind of a, a major point where I'm like, wait a minute. And uh, it, it really changed from like an interest. So I was very interested in Mormon church history and Mormon church doctrine uh, read a fair amount about that, and I was fascinated with what we believe. Mm-hmm. And then, as I got into psychology, that shifted from what we believe to how we believe, mm-hmm. and it's very, very, it was very, very different for me, and expanded greatly what I was able to read, uh, what I was able to know, and realize that I didn't mm-hmm. know. What's the difference between? you know, this kind of why and how we believe compared to the what we believe. Like, I know those are two distinct ways of approaching belief. I'm just curious, like, if you can talk a little bit about the the, uh, distinctions there. Like, what's the difference between those two uh, ways of interacting with belief? And I can only talk from where I am now, from my perspective now, and knowing that our brains really like certainty. We do not like ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that having these rules, having these, especially because they were in, in the LDS church directly inspired from and currently driven by God. It's like, oh yeah, these are the rules for life. This is how I'm supposed to be. And I can learn more about that and I can live my life more how I'm supposed to and how it's supposed to be done. So, so pretty rigid, but also comforting. Mm, sure. Whereas once I jumped into uh, how we believe, all of the certainty answers left, and it just became basically as far as we know to this point, or as far as people who know, and have studied this their entire lives and careers know, this is what we think the evidence shows. And it's very, very different and not as comforting, but really fascinating. Yeah. So, so there's this, we believe like almost when you want to know what you believe, it's, you almost, you you just start from the assumption that my beliefs are true and useful and um, reflect reality. And so then all of that learning around the what um, is focused on just supporting that belief. When you move to the how, like how unsettling was that for you when it shifted to the, the how you believe? I don't remember it being super unsettling. I remember thinking, wow. And, mm-hmm. Well, uh, anyone who has watched Elizabeth Loftus' work, that's unsettling mm-hmm. because uh, of how memories are formed and how they're overlaid upon previous memories and that they can distort and change to the, the degree that they do. That's weird. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was unsettling. But the, I, I didn't immediately lose all faith in religion. And so it wasn't a, just a really hard shift for me. So mm-hmm. it was more a fascination. Uh, and, you know, I knew that I wanted to uh, 
be a psychologist at that point mm-hmm. and be a therapist. And so it was more, it, I still had that purposeful learning. This mm-hmm. is going to help me in what I want to do. And so there wasn't, there what it, it wasn't just for me. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like, uh, Oh no, now what am I going to do? It's like, Oh, this is what I'm learning so I can do what I want to do career wise right. and how I can assist people. Okay. And then also kind of applying that to your own individual experience with that new information. Yes. Yeah. So how can I use this in my clinical practice down the road? And then how can I incorporate this new information so that I can be a better human or like, yeah, like, yeah, incorporate that in some way that's useful for you. Yeah. yeah. And eventually it, it freed up Sundays for mountain biking, which was uh, also liberating. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Carolyn, I was wanting to, um, to ask a, a similar question um, of you, you know, I, I know we want to talk about the class you're teaching and um, that work, um, sure. but also like kind of from, from a personal level, like what, what was it like to transition from, I have these beliefs that are true and, it makes sense. And then all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. And like, what was that kind of, that, that, yeah. what that looked like for you? It was, it was kind of funny for me. I was, I was listening to James talk about how it wasn't a hard shift and I was the other way where it wasn't a slow climb and then a, a kind of a snap. Mm-hmm. Mine was the other way around where it was like snap and then kind of slow integration. Oh, yeah. So with that. I grew up like Catholic light, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom had converted three different times in different religions, mm. mostly related to the people she was with. Mm-hmm. And my my dad's family is Irish Catholic for generations. Mm-hmm. And so grew up doing that and was also a high school debate geek. And mm. I don't know how much you know about that, but they make you argue both sides right. of any particular thing. And that definitely influenced my how I believe mm-hmm. because there's this automatic thing of like, What's the other side of that? What's the, what's the negative? What's the affirmative, right? What's, what's, how does that work? And then I went to college. So education really does break Mm -hmm. people. And, um, I took medieval humanities and philosophy 101 in the same semester Mm -hmm. (laughs) with really great people. And growing up Catholic, that, that medieval stuff gets super relevant. Mm -hmm. And basically I, I had this very like, uh oh. I very clearly saw the negative all of a sudden. Not mm. not bad, but just like, mm-hmm. hey, this story is this. But it turns out that the way like the Bible was made and mm. like the College of Cardinals voted on which books to pick and this is when the books were written. Like I learned all of that stuff in one semester. Wow. Yeah. As well as all the the philosophy stuff, like the the problem of good and evil and all mm. that stuff. Like that was all one semester and I was like, Boom, done. And what that, what that meant for my life took a long time to figure Mm -hmm. out. But at that, like by the end of that semester, I considered myself agnostic for a very long time and then had another hard snap into full blown atheism. Yeah. Um, do you, do you think that seeing your mom kind of go through that, uh, those transitions, even though she was going from kind of one religious faith or one belief system to another, um, and, I know the debate piece, obviously being able to see both sides of an issue or a belief is, would be super helpful. Um, like, like, do you think it was easier for you to do that because you had like a model of that? You, you'd seen other people kind of go through that process. So at that point I hadn't, her conversions oh, okay. happened before I was born for the most part. Okay. Uh, she became Catholic when I, the same year I went through my first communion because okay. I said, um, 
I said something to them on senior because there's this thing about how you do communion if you're not Catholic, mm. you stay in the pews, okay. right? And I wasn't super thrilled with that and mm. I didn't get it. And I, you know, whatever explanation mom had given me, I said to the monsignor, she wants to be Catholic, but she doesn't know how. Mm. And he's like, we can fix that. And okay. she was like, I'll look into it. And then she uh-huh. did. And so I did see that. And she, she studied hard and she asked a lot of questions and she pushed hard. Mm. Having said that, she's very, she's very prone to the affirmative, right? right? Sure. Yeah. And so, What the bigger thing, that freedom piece came in for me when I was going through my confirmation process Mm -hmm. and I was really kind of doubting and I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay, that's fine. And so I I had that, like, I was a little fearful of the rejection and afraid Mm -hmm. that it was going to cause family kerfuffle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and just kind of being given permission to take my own journey was a really big deal and actually led me to completing my confirmation because we went on a retreat yeah. and I, I asked some other questions and and felt like it was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. you know? That's so fascinating when you say, like, your, your mom was like, hey, it's okay if you don't believe. I, I can only imagine, like, that works out regardless of where you end up, you know? If yeah. you believe, then your mom's like, well, she's not just doing it for me. Yeah. And if you don't, like that's okay too. I mean, that's, that's such a such a gift to be given that where where it isn't there's so there's there isn't so much kind of social pressure to yeah. comply. She was definitely not okay with me not believing. Okay, she was okay with me not believing that particular thing, gotcha. and yeah. she was particularly not super invested in me like joining the tribe of Catholicism. Mm. But when I later lost all belief, mm. we we had some discussions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that certainly is. Uh, that, that, that's a, a whole nother level, it seems like. It's just yeah. scary for her. Yeah. It's interesting how as long as you believe in some God or some you know, religion, then um, we tend to give people a pass yeah. as, as believers. Yeah. Yep. I was agnostic for probably 10, 15 years, and she mm. was fine with that. Mm. Um, because there's just still this like, okay, but you believe in something. Yeah. Did you tell her, like, I don't believe at all at some point? I did. Or, yeah. yeah. What, what was that like? Um, she was, it was mostly me calming her down Um, a little bit and it was a, it was a little bit of a process, but there's that phenomenon. I don't know if you guys have had this experience where immediately people start defending their beliefs and they start doing that. And she did that a little bit Mm -hmm. or they immediately just start needing to tell you all the things they believe and are sort of like setting Mm -hmm. up fences Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's cool. I'm not out to change anybody. Right. It's just this part of the story doesn't hold water for mm-hmm. me. And that's I if the if the story doesn't hold water, I can't do it. She could. Right. She has she had no relation to the story. Like yeah. she didn't need truth to be a part of the thing. And so for me learning to let other people mm-hmm. have that experience was was growth. Yeah. <laughs> James, I James, I know we've talked before about um, this, I can't believe like, like there's a point where you try to, and I think when you, when you're talking to believing family members and friends and you're trying to explain like why it is that you no longer believe, I think a lot of times the the perception is that, you know, you just don't want to, you're not trying hard enough. You're not, you know, praying enough or believing like faith. And so like, how, how would you characterize that the experience of, of belief being something that kind of isn't in your control. Like, like talk more about that. 
it seems like people have used belief as a verb. Like mm-hmm. you, you need to choose to believe as mm-hmm. if that choice was part of the belief thing. And it, that was confusing for me because uh, it was clear that I saw it very distinctly from them. And whenever I would attempt to use an example that, that would clarify uh, that for them, it would come across as rude. And mm-hmm. they do. I'll use a couple of them. Like, no, I actually cannot believe in, let's talk specifically about uh, Mormon history, which I'd read a lot about when mm-hmm. I was a young kid, listened to audiobooks, and then when I, we haven't gotten to this part yet, but I actually went and researched to see if I could believe, mm-hmm. because my wife uh, it, uh, wanted to, wanted us to start going back to church, and I couldn't believe mm-hmm. the evidence that demonstrated so clearly that it was just so distinct and just so different from how I had learned and then how I'd learned the stories and how I'd been taught as a kid and adolescent and even uh, a young adult that it was just, there was no way I could believe mm-hmm. it because the other story made so much sense with so much evidence mm-hmm. backing it. So I did a little circle there, but uh, the examples would be like, okay, did you ever believe in the Easter bunny? Mm-hmm. And can you now believe in the Easter bunny or Santa Claus yeah. or the tooth fairy? Yeah. And it's, but it's, it comes across as so rude and so demeaning because mm-hmm. it's, and I understand the sacredness of their belief. Right. And so that's why it comes across as rude because we don't have sanctity wrapped mm-hmm. up too much. A little bit in Santa Claus, but not yeah. that much in the tooth fairy, right. you know. Uh, and so it, it comes across as very, like, not the same. But mm-hmm. as far as my ability to believe in my perception, it's the same. I can't believe in stuff mm-hmm. for which I have found out that it is not. Mm-hmm. true based on how the world works. Yeah, and how do you find, uh, you know, I think you bring up a really great point there. Of it, it's really hard to have a conversation like like what we're talking about with, with a family member and without it seeming patronizing um, and, and even using the examples that you mentioned, I mean, it makes sense to me. And, and I, I use the example also of, um, you know, it's like a magic trick. It, 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 it's you really enjoy the the experience of the magic. But then at some point, if you are able to see behind the scenes of like how it happens, the actual sleight of hand, then it, it, it ruins the magic trick. I mean, I guess um, you no longer have that same kind of reaction response to it. And once you do, well, once you see the sleight of hand, then your mind will always kind of see that you can no longer kind of have that magical experience. And so, yeah, it's really hard to have this conversation without it seeming, um, yeah, like disrespectful. Yeah, disrespectful. Um, it's like, well, no, like, but God is different than Santa Claus. And it's true. But then seeing the similarities, um, is really hard for a believer, I think. And have you found other ways of having that conversation that, that results in less defenses? And I'll ask you the same question too, Carolyn. Well, I got, <sighs> I recently had a conversation with a friend and we sort of reprocessed an old conversation. And basically I had been 
a bit graceless, I think, mm-hmm. in how I said it, because I was still kind of going through my own process. And because this, the truth of the story matters to me, mm-hmm. basically I said something along the lines of, like, if you'd read the stuff I'd read, you wouldn't be able to see it that way either. Right. But she's another one of these people, sort of like my mom, where it's about the feelings. Right. Right. And so that's not important to her. Mm-hmm. And and for her, it felt very much like I was calling her stupid, which I was not. Right. Um, and that was never my intent. But, it, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't like you still have to be conscious of how people are listening to what you're saying. Right. right? And and then just kind of owning my struggle with that epistemological thing where people believe in different ways and for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so the things that changed me won't necessarily change other people and certainly not in the same predictable way. Right. It's interesting to think about, you know, sometimes we want to believe true things, right? And, and yet I think sometimes as, as secular individuals or non-believers, post-theists, however we want to, you know, um, categorize ourselves, um, we fail to recognize that we still operate in this kind of emotional place. This we, we, we perceive the world because of constructs that we have and stories that we, that are useful for us. And, and I think sometimes we, we, we live under this illusion that, you know, we're just, everything's logic and reason and, and we, we believe all the true things and, um, and it's really important to us. And we, we kind of don't recognize how much of life is, you know, just, stories that we tell ourselves and, and yeah. So I think it's good to let believers know that we too are experiencing the world through these kind of psychological processes where um, we have, we're constructing frameworks that make sense to us. And, 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 and for me, I guess it, I feel more, uh, I, I think it's more of a problem if we like get really, hold tightly to a particular idea. And I think that's, that's how religion functioned for me. It wasn't so much that the beliefs themselves weren't true. Um, although that's the conclusion I arrived at. Um, but it was like how tightly they were held. Like if, if it were, if it were a story that was useful and it helped, you know, share your morality with your kids or whatever, well then great. Like use any story at that point. But if you picked a story that works for you, that's awesome. As soon as you say like, this is the only story and all the other stories don't work. And and I I think sometimes on the secular side, we, we come across that way. Like we know the right answers because we've done the research and you know, we know like our truth is better than your truth. And it's a different form of truth sometimes, but not always. And so I'm just, just curious what your guys' thoughts are about that as well. So I was, I, I, I still got stuck on something that Carolyn said as far as uh, how people, some people believe for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to kind of separate that because there's how we come to believe something and then how we maintain that mm-hmm. belief are Persist. somewhat different. Yeah. And uh, we generally come to believe things in fairly similar ways. It's a lot of intuition, a lot more intuition, mm-hmm. a lot more just kind of believing or seeing something in, in the way that we, that we perceive it instantaneously and mm-hmm. then making up stories about why that is the way that it is right. uh, mm-hmm. to the point that once we have a belief that's solid, once we've <laughs> uh, formed this, then how do we maintain that and how do we lose that or how do we mm-hmm. change belief later on? That's interesting. So, so you're saying in, um, 
and maybe Carolyn agrees as well. Like the, the, the basic process, the basic psychological process of how a belief forms in our, in our brain, right. And in our experience, it is quite similar, but people bring a lot of context to that, a lot of experience to that. And like, then how they go about maintaining that or holding it lightly or clinging tightly, like the different ways they interact with the belief. Like, would, would, would that be fair to say, Carolyn? Like, yes. And I think a little bit more complex than that. So I'm also mindful that to other people, I think a lot of times when you talk about the stories we tell, that makes super sense in psychology mm-hmm. land, but to everybody else, that sounds super pedantic. Oh, yeah, okay. um, and so I really, again, it's still a technical term, but I really like this concept of attribution, how mm-hmm. I explain my experience, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I attribute this thing to God, to whatever experience, and which is a little bit different than kind of the work that it takes. So like building a house versus maintaining a house are mm-hmm. very, very different actions, right? right? Building the belief, relatively straightforward. You got to build the mm-hmm. frame. You got to have an experience. You got to tell a story, mm-hmm. right? You have to make lots of attributions. Right. And then, but defending an attribution or, or protecting it or continuing to like add layers to mm-hmm. it, that's kind of a separate process a little bit. And, and understanding that I think is a, I don't know. I'm rambling a bit, but it's a big part of the journey, I think. I think so. Yeah. So I'm just bouncing off that idea. So, uh, Piaget, uh, Carolyn brought this up earlier. Cognitive psychology learning guy. Yep. So child, child development learning guy kind of came up with, uh, you know, how we, we incorporate new experiences to our life, right? Mm -hmm. We either assimilate them, right? Or we, accommodate them mm-hmm. uh, and, and 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 those are very different mm. different processes go, go ahead and make that distinction more clear for, for those okay Carolyn go <laughs> yeah, ahead I just taught this in a context oh, of a okay. different class I'm teaching awesome. so that was it, it came up earlier but basically you make a box in your mind that mm-hmm. we call a schema right mm-hmm. and when you get new information your your brain's first instinct is to find a way to shove it into the existing box. Right. Because that's more efficient, typically. Yes. Yes. Like if you it's... have a box, fill it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And that's certainly less effort cognitively mm-hmm. than building sure. a new box. But some things just can't be done that way. Mm-hmm. And so then we have to make a new box. Mm-hmm. But then we also immediately start adding in extra stuff to that box that may or may not go there. Okay. So, so I want to pause because I think there's a lot here. And, and, and I, I think it would be really important to understand this kind of deconversion process as well. So, so that would, would you say a deconversion experience would be typically a, this requires a new box kind of experience. And so then you, like, I can no longer believe what I believed before for all the reasons. And, and now it requires a new box. When you say filling it with, with additional, kind of extraneous stuff. Like what, what are you talking about there? Give give some maybe concrete examples yes. so we can understand that. So, and I'm also going to go back to this. I don't think everybody's first box explodes in the deconversion, okay. right? Mm-hmm. So like my mom was somebody who, when she left her things, it wasn't because she didn't believe in them anymore. She mm-hmm. just left that box sitting there. Right. It didn't explode on her. It didn't break. It didn't fail. Mm-hmm. She just left it and walked off to other stuff. And I think lots of people have that experience. Whereas somebody such as myself, perhaps, mm-hmm. or I think the people at this table, our boxes exploded or yeah. failed on us, failed us right? Yeah. And so we needed a whole new box. Mm-hmm. And we also 
didn't just leave this old box back there. We're still kind of carrying them, examining them, rifling through them. Concrete examples. I, I teach this in the context of a psychology of gender course. Mm-hmm. And there's a researcher named Ben, B-E-M, and she talks a lot about how so many things are gendered that don't need to be. Mm, and sure, we just yeah. throw lots of stuff in the gender box that oh, don't belong sense. there. Yeah. Right? Like Mother Earth or... Yeah, I can think of, yeah, they fail me at the moment. But yeah, there's so many things that, like, even our vehicle, right? Like, she's a good truck or whatever. You know, like, we do that. Yeah. This stuff, hosting Mm -hmm. a podcast. Uh I'm relatively certain the male to female ratio is massively high, Mm -hmm. right? Have we gendered podcasts? We certainly gender technology, right? We assume assume men will be interested in technology stuff Mm -hmm. or video games or what. Like, we've gendered these things, but it's not a gender thing. It becomes Mm -hmm. one because. We threw it in the box. Right. Right? And then it, it becomes very socially reinforcing and it becomes more expected. And once it's expected, we forget to stop and go, is it true? And then you ask a bunch of the girl gamers and they're mm-hmm. like, it's not it's true. Not true. Yeah. It feels like it a lot because we keep getting this feedback. And is that because we kind of have this label, we, we've created this box. And, and would you say like that's a, like a gender box? And then we say, okay, mm-hmm. these are the kinds of things that go in that box just because. There's mm-hmm. no like reason apart from we've just decided and that becomes then it becomes more kind of real in our experience. Very much so. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so this is actually a really good example of how something is socially constructed, right. which we haven't talked about yet, but I think is super important because we don't want to miss the social piece of this. So once mm-hmm. it starts being that podcasts are generally hosted by males mm-hmm. or video gamers are generally male, it... So, Socially, we start to accept that as just, Mm -hmm. that's just how things are. Mm -hmm. Carolyn brings up, but you talk to the female video gamers Mm -hmm. and my instant thought is, yes, many of whom aren't super adept at figuring out what's socially expected and what's not socially expected. Mm -hmm. Very, very biased thing to say. And I I want to acknowledge that right right away. And that's still kind of this this idea that popped up mm-hmm. into so my this head. This is a great right. example of this assimilation, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, I'm still keeping my video game schema and my girl schema intact right. by just saying those aren't like real girls or they're not as girly as other girls. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying they're not as girly. They're just not as, they're just not maybe as... But you're assuming uh-huh. video game girls are like inherently, like you have, you have this special stereotype that you carved out just for them. Which I think is also super less true year by year, mm-hmm. especially if you, you know, go to places where folks gather, where it's not just a bunch of geeky girls or girls who are more like this than they are like this, mm-hmm. okay. right? It's really interesting in my class to watch people speak up and talk about these things. And you'll see the girls who are super into the girly stuff mm-hmm. who are also into first person shooter games, yeah, okay. right? right? Sure. And so being willing to just realize that it's, it's, it's become a gendered thing. But then people have also started pushing back and saying yeah. that box does not suit me. Yeah, and I, I'm just going to say I think that's that's what I'm hearing in, in this conversation is um, there are individuals who say that box doesn't work, that box doesn't make sense. Why does that box even exist? And maybe they're saying, pointing out like there are things in this box <laughs> that don't belong there, or it doesn't they don't serve any function of, of, or they don't serve a useful function anymore. Taking it back to the God thing. Mm-hmm. So the other piece with this gender thing is we apply the gender label to all sorts of stuff. Right. We apply the God thing to all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. that it's not 
that the conditions were necessary and sufficient without it. Yeah. Right? So that was a God thing. Right? Or so, a spiritual thing. I think a spiritual, right. like, that becomes this very big umbrella term. Yes. And so you can have, you can enjoy a really amazing sunset, and all of a sudden, because you have a spiritual box, you're like, well, I'll put that in there. That kind of makes sense. That kind of feels like this other, right. quote-unquote, spiritual experience that I have sometimes. It's so interesting just, just to know, like, that putting things in a box that don't necessarily fit yeah. is a... I mean, are you seeing that that's kind of an instinctive thing that we humans do? And that's just kind of part of how our brain works. Mm -hmm. It's part of cognitive efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so I already have a God box. And as a very young child, awe got thrown into my God box. And so anything that causes awe automatically gets associated with that same box. Super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. James, uh, actually, when you mentioned that, I know, James, you've talked about... um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit or the, the, the sense that you have um, as an LDS believer, and frankly, as like a lot of Christian believers, um, well, not that LDS believers are Christians. I, I know there, I know that, that whole conversation too. Um, but, but like attributing a certain feeling to um, the Holy Spirit or putting, you know, physical sensations or whatever it might be into that, that kind of Holy Spirit box is, yeah, it, it, I, again, we're talking about attributions, I think. So uh, I, so I actually served an LDS mission in Mexico, mm-hmm. and uh, we would meet people who would feel similar things that we would feel. Like when, physical things. Like physical things or just, <clears throat> yeah, it just, just or have the same experience human that we have, human <laughs> things. And we would, we would have to explain, oftentimes we'd have to explain, okay, this is what it feels like to feel the whole, we call it the Holy Ghost or the, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. God's Spirit. This is what it feels like. And then, but we, we, we were flexible. So we sure. would ask them what they're feeling. And then we would say, yes, that's the Holy Spirit testifying mm-hmm. to you that what we are teaching and what you're reading in the Book of Mormon and the Bible a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, is from God. That's right. God telling you that this is true. And people would, that would be emotional for people because they're like, wow, yeah, that's what that is. I felt this way a lot mm-hmm. and that's bringing me to God. And so once we give them that context, we teach them what that means. In some ways it's a, it's a, a construct or a concept, right? You say like, this is how God works. or this is how we know the church is true. And then, yeah, like if you have one of these kind of experiences, then now you know what to call it. Now you know what it is, whereas mm-hmm. before you didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting how like the, the concept itself um, changes that actually the, the experience, like the warm feeling that they got on occasion for a thousand <laughs> other reasons. Now it's like, okay, that fits into this, this concept of, of the Holy Ghost is, is telling me something is true. Right. And so once, you know, people have been LDS or especially if they grew up in the church like I did, uh, they oftentimes can't, I mean, they can learn about the history of the church or how the doctrine has shifted and how dramatically it shifted since, mm-hmm. uh, the inception of the church until now, uh, and some, you know, things that they've done in the past and they've taught in the past, how we do not teach that now at mm-hmm. all without any, any, in my view, viable, you know, viable mm-hmm. explanation. 
uh, it's still hard for people to deny that, but I felt that it was true mm-hmm. and I attributed it to this God telling me that mm-hmm. it's true. I can't deny that. And how can you deny that? Cause that's what we've been taught. Right. So, so in some ways it takes, like you can't undermine a belief through logic and reason and like new information if the primary kind of driver of that belief or confirmer of that belief it is this sense that you feel that you then attribute to God. Like, so if you have a feeling and you have a construct of when this feeling arises, it means that this is true or that, yeah, my, my faith is true or whatever, then, then yeah, like if, if, if that, if you get rid of all those kind of um, like beliefs, the things that you maybe wrote down at one point or the church believed and then has changed like that, that's very secondary. It seems like. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I mean, I, what you said is extremely <laughs> evident is you, we do not change people's beliefs mm-hmm. through knocking down their arguments. It is very, very ineffective and it makes them defensive. I want to jump somewhere really quick because I, uh, and, and part of the reason why is because we want to be congruent. Uh, we want to mean what we say and say what we mean. Mm -hmm. So I said something about a while ago about female video gamers. Mm -hmm. Carolyn said something that cast into doubt what I had said, not only what I had said, but what I had said publicly, which is very important. And so I noticed my mind thinking, Oh, but, but, Mm -hmm. but, and then I noticed that I'm like, Oh, I want to defend my belief that I said, or maybe change my words a little bit so that I don't sound like I was mistaken. Right. Because that's not okay. I'm not a sexist butthead, so what I said... What I said was, right? But I noticed how that pull was there Mm -hmm. for me to do that. And Mm -hmm. so, but that's that's hard to notice stuff like that, especially when there's emotion involved. Right. Carol and I are close friends mm-hmm. and so she's been right and I've been mistaken a couple times before <laughs> so I'm more used to it uh, we won't count how many times I'm aware of more than a few <laughs> uh, don't tell me yeah. when they were but no. the, the challenge of not digging in and not yeah it was good to see it in real time. Right, right now. for yeah, sure. And so, to yeah. just well, give yourself that space to just go quiet and go, huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then you might swing back around to it, right? Mm-hmm. right? But just giving yourself that space to go quiet, people don't do that because there's that emotional driver mm-hmm. going, uh-uh, uh-uh, it's okay, I'm not, I'm not that person, right. right? It's like, I know, and... Right. And, and biases exist and it's helpful to have someone who, who cares about you and who you care about point them out. And I think in some ways, like we're talking about this in terms of, of leaving religion or, or, or your belief changing in that way. I think, I mean, this, these processes are, are like applicable to all these really difficult social questions that we're wrestling with. And the, the, the way we double down on beliefs or the way we um, want to feel like we're right um, about something, I, 
you know, I think that it's really helpful to, to find ways to not like hold so tightly to our beliefs or defend ourselves so strongly. And I think, I mean, obviously there's, you know, evolutionary reasons why we want to be accepted in the group and we want to defend our, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be seen as, as, um, you know, a bad person or, or whatever. So people can dismiss us or, or write us off. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to see how these processes are so challenging and how do we navigate them in, in, in a useful way. And oftentimes we're not, it's, we're not in a, in a space or an environment that facilitates that. Yes. So <laughs> Carolyn and I have worked together for many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I consult her when I get stuck and she mm-hmm. thinks it's humorous when I get stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, she finds great joy in that. And it's funny. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. Cause you're so flexible until so, I'm not. Until yeah. you're not. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but mm-hmm. as we're consulting on clients, mm-hmm. it's very important Mm-hmm. That if I am stuck in a belief or in something that's not yeah. working, that I have someone else to bounce that off Absolutely. of. Someone I can trust who will yeah. say, have you looked at it this mm-hmm. way? Have you seen this? Help me help me get flexible so I can be effective at my job. That's yeah. important. And so in this context, we have a lot of opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. And we get used to it. In this context, yeah. I don't always generalize it to other people in my life, mm-hmm. but with Carolyn yeah. and with you, sure. I'm more I'm more comfortable doing that. Right, and you know, I, Carolyn, I want you to weigh in on this too. This idea that James is talking about, um, where we we really need to have these these challenging conversations, and and it seems like so often they are about, well, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm right, or not even I'm right, just like your idea is wrong. Right. Therefore, like I don't have to like, you know, consider it, it at all. And as we're talking the distinction between how a belief is formed versus how it's maintained, we're, we're often saying you need to change your belief and the other person is still in this, I need to maintain my belief phase. And so, you know, I think the three of us having worked together uh, for years and like trusting each other, um, to call each other on our BS to help us, to help us see when we are stuck and, and to be able to receive that in a way that we can change our behavior, change how we see the world. Um, how do we facilitate that? Like, where do we, how do we form that, um, in, in, into a group setting or into, into society at large? And I'm just curious, like, if you have ideas, like, what are some of the small steps we can take to change the conversation from it's about right and wrong, sure. like your idea is wrong. And, and that might be true. Um, and even if it is true, if our goal is to help the person see it differently or respond differently, then getting stuck on the right and wrongness of the thing is not as helpful as can I help you become more flexible? For sure. So I think about this in the context of teaching the psychology of belief class. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the biggest challenges of that class was to get people to focus on the how we believe, not the what we believe. Mm. And some people got it and they knew right away and they were super clear and it was fine. Other folks, you just had to kind of keep reminding them, don't get caught up in the how, in the, in the what, right? And so it's interesting. Some of these students I've had for a couple of classes in a row, I taught a section of 101, they took the gender class and they take this class. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, early on, so the 101 level version of this is just exposing them to really radical thoughts. Mm. Like, color isn't a thing. 
Yeah, let's talk about that because I think so many, so often we have a, a belief and we're like, but this is true. And, and the, the, the distinction between it's true as a concept or as a construct is different than it's true in this kind of uh, perceiver independent truth, right? Like this is true regardless of whether you have a brain that's interpreting light wavelengths into specific colors. So yeah, help me understand. So um, color, <laughs> it does not exist without eyeballs. Right. In a right? brain. Yeah. Right. right. Yes. All, all the parts <clears throat> have to work right. together, but you have rods and you have cones, right? right? And so cones perceive color and like mantis shrimp have more cones than we do. Mm-hmm. And there's some woman who has an extra set of cones. Yeah. And so they can see stuff we can't see, but all you're really doing is perceiving certain wavelengths of light. And it's mm-hmm. what your brain does and your eyes do in reaction to a thing. Mm-hmm. And so you see color and outside of you or outside of creatures with eyeballs and brains, mm-hmm. it's not a thing. And, and, and I think it's interesting to, to make the distinction too. Like we, we don't see color. We construct color in our brain having seen the different light waves right, right. right. And, and that and yeah it's so interesting like even sound like we're, we're making sounds with our voice right now and we're interpreting words because that's what humans do um but a sound like we don't even hear sounds we we our ears detect vibrations of of yeah, yeah vibrations in the air and then those vibrations our brain says like oh that particular vibration is a word that I've learned and have some context for and I'm interpreting it this way. So it's so interesting to, to how we feel like we are living in this reality this that's true. And blue is only blue because my brain has a concept of these um, light wave um, wavelengths. And, and and someone has said, like, those mean blue. Right. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like we don't – to hold tightly to – even something as fundamental to getting through the day as color or, um, or sound or, or any kind of, um, sensation that we are, have some interpreting or or having some construct around. Yeah. Well, we're back to this idea of cognitive efficiency, right? Like I can't spend all day really debating about whether color is real, but you have to create a space, right? And the classroom creates a space for Mm -hmm. people to have new ideas. That's its entire function. Mm -hmm. Right. And to come across things they might have not done otherwise. And for me, one of the perks of like facts are available everywhere. The perks of the classroom are about this notion of watching everybody's face when Mm -hmm. that happens and the people for whom it clicks and the people for whom it clicks and they pull back Mm -hmm. versus the people for whom it clicks and they step forward. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are just like, what are you talking? It's blue. (laughs) It's just blue. Right. Right. And kind of helping everybody navigate those waters in their Mm -hmm. own way and kind of understand what that means for themselves. And then we take that forward into this, how, how we believe, you know, the psychology of belief class. And I present them with many, many of these weird, weird things. Mm -hmm. Right. So do you know anything about the cargo cults of Vanuatu? Yes, I do, but I'm not sure the listeners do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really great example of attribution as well. And yeah. And so we talk about it in a lot of different ways, but it's basically these people who lived in an island nation in the Pacific Mm -hmm. and during World War II, Americans landed Mm -hmm. and they brought with them a bunch of consumer goods Mm -hmm. and they built a bunch of stuff. 
And then World War II ended and they went away. Right. Right? So we used it as a way station. Mm -hmm. But while we were there, they had extra food. They had extra stuff. Mm -hmm. They had, you know, work and commerce in a way that they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. Right? They leave... The people sort of keep trying to recreate this, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they built a runway and they have these ceremonies that are reminiscent of military mm -hmm. drills. And there's a little bit of an, if you build it, they will come kind yeah, of thing. Like the second coming, right? Right. And they so didn't we, have beliefs around like there, like there might be a return of, yeah. Of, right. Don from is, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. the John from cargo cults. Mm -hmm. But one of the points that I make with them, because I, I introduce it because it's such a quirky thing. But I'm also really clear with them. And I say, if you're making fun of these people, you're completely missing the point. Yes. <clears throat> we do this all the time. We just don't notice. Mm -hmm. Right? Because there's there's pictures of people with, like, USA painted on their chests to look like uniforms and stuff. Yeah. And then I pull up pictures of other people with stuff painted on their chests mm -hmm. and recreating these facsimiles of things in an effort mm -hmm. to gain a result. Right? Right? And it's like, no, this is how we handle stuff. Right? Yeah. This is such a great little microcosm of it. And so let's... Let's poke at it, but if you're mocking how silly it is, mm -hmm. you don't understand your own brain at all. You know, and I, I think this, yeah, I, I would like both of you to weigh in on this as well. So often, um, when we move from belief to non-belief, we see, like, firsthand how silly our former beliefs were to us now looking at it through this lens. And I think what you're saying, Carolyn, um, is so important. If we are at this state of now it's, it's now we're capable of like mocking or seeing the silliness of the former beliefs. There's a really good chance that we aren't also aware of how silly it is that we, um, you know, buy into other concepts that are, are based on, on, you know, yeah, are, are, are not based on observer independent kind of reality, but are just based on constructs that we have. And like, we can't, we can't get away from them. And I, and I guess that's the other point too, is like, maybe it isn't a bad thing or an unhelpful thing for us, for people to have religious beliefs, if it works for them. Um, my, my beef with religion isn't that it's based on, on bad facts. It's, it's my beef is like, it, it's not useful when it's held rigidly and it can be harmful when it's held rigidly for some people in some context. And so I'm really, I really care about like, is this working or not? And sometimes it just doesn't work, but right. it isn't, it primarily isn't because you know, your, your, your story doesn't have the right facts behind it. So right. like, I would like you to weigh in on like, what do we do when we move past a belief and how do we avoid kind of falling into this? Oh, well that was silly. And now I'm like super enlightened and smart. And like, I can see the world clearly right. now. Whereas before, like, I can't believe I was so stupid. Like, right. so Hashtag I'm very smart. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, I think that's a part of it because that it's that same thing of laughing with versus laughing at. Mm -hmm. If you can acknowledge how flippin' silly our brains are oh, and just yeah. how much we all do this. And this is such a human experience. Mm -hmm. Then there's room for empathy and compassion and humor all at the same time. Yeah. And we can mock, but we're, as long as we're clear that we're mocking ourselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think that's where, when James was saying earlier about the uh, Santa Claus example, yeah, like it is humorous and it, it, we can like, notice like hey our brains do this thing and we want to believe things just because we want to believe them and we like the story and how it feels and all that stuff and isn't it kind of interesting like that we do this all the time and i still do that yeah. and and but as soon as we say and yeah like 
you do that too in this kind of religious context, I think it's still very hard for that not to be perceived as, you know, patting them on the head or being patronizing. And, and I, I think, so this laughing with versus laughing at, like, I don't know how to do that well, but I think that, that there's a key there to how we do that. What, what are your thoughts, James? I think it's uh, protective to, to look at this and like, oh yeah, that's a silly belief. They believe that if they did this, the people would come back mm-hmm. and provide more food. And, you know, that is silly. But if we call them silly, we don't have to, we don't get to look at or don't have to look at how we do the exact same yeah. thing. So one of my favorite books, if not my, my most favorite nonfiction book is <clears throat> uh, Mistakes Were Made, But mm-hmm. Not By Me. Mm-hmm. And everyone, many people who I've had read that, they really, really enjoy it because they're able to see how other people mm-hmm. do these things all the time. And it's so eye-opening. And it's like, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And we do that. And I do that. Yeah. Uh, it, it also brought me up as, as far as this, this sense of loss mm-hmm. and this what do we do there. I think empathy is the way in. So, so, so if we try to attack someone's or, or change their belief by... You know, giving them new facts, mm-hmm. that's just not going to work. We right. have to see it from their point of view. We have to talk. And not that it's our goal to change people's belief, because mm-hmm. it's painful. Right. When it's, it, it, and it can pull the rug out of their world. Mm-hmm. And if it's working for them, why would I want to do that? Right. Just because I'm at a place where it's like, yeah, I don't believe those things. Is it best? You know, mm-hmm. it, it's a Star Trek question. Uh, is <laughs> it best? Active. Yeah. And... <laughs> One story to illustrate that because I'm kind of fond of my kids, mm-hmm. as you guys may have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> but so I have uh, a male child, female child, and Ronan is my son, Aaron, and they're a year and a half. Aaron's a year and a half younger. Mm-hmm. So when Ronan was nine, it was uh, the Christmas season, mm-hmm. and I had listened to just this beautiful story of Santa Claus on NPR. Mm-hmm. And it was someone who'd written a book about it and he just went through and talked about the mythology and then actually how it had, you know, how it started way before with, with the pagans Mm -hmm. as far as winter solstice and then how that brought through and how St. Nicholas Mm -hmm. or Nicholas uh, changed that and how that was adapted by Catholicism and Christianity. And it was just a beautiful story. And he pretty bright little kid questions a lot mm-hmm. and so he'd been asking some questions about santa claus and he his birthday's just right before christmas and so just after his birthday i you know i said hey you're nine it's time for the nine-year-old santa claus story mm-hmm. and it was a bedtime story for him and so i went through all of this and i spent about a half hour mm-hmm. making i thought this would be this beautiful experience for him to realize okay yeah santa claus as i've thought of him is mm-hmm. not exactly that but it's still beautiful it's still this beautiful myth yeah yeah yeah, this metaphor yeah and he's listening intently his eyes are big and then he finishes and he's like dad i need to talk to mom Mm. and so i'm like okay so i went and got his mom she came in and he's like dad told me this is this true (laughs) and he starts to cry and she said yes that's true and it was fairly sad for Mm -hmm. him and we're and then we kind of reinforced the the positive pieces. And then he said, okay, but let's not tell Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I said, well, how about when she's nine? 
no, we no, let's not tell her because he's empathetic. He, he, he didn't did, want her to ever feel what he felt. Right. Yeah. He did. He <laughs> wanted to spare her from that feeling, but then he's pragmatic, and so he said, "Well." When she goes off to college, or be, for sure before she has kids, we should probably tell her. Otherwise, her kids won't get presents. And so he's actually thinking through, well, eventually we have to, but I want to spare her from this pain as long as I can. Yeah. It's interesting because I think sometimes there's almost a, um, you know, uh, like a parallel kind of experience in, within religion where your experience isn't delightful and you Santa Claus isn't this, you know, beautiful thing, but you realize like, no, like these beliefs about you're not good enough or you're, you know, wicked or the you know, the shame. Threat, yeah. Right. right. So, so I think, you know, in the same way a person might go through that experience then and feel like, Hey, I don't want my, my siblings, my nieces and nephews, my, you know, family members to, um, to have a, like this kind of um, not helpful version of Santa Claus belief, you know? Yeah. And so, so it's so interesting. Like, how do we, how do we, you know, share this with friends and family? If, if we are feeling like this would be good for them to know, just like in the same way that Ronan was like, you know, before my sister goes off to college or has kids of her own, like we don't want her to like persist in this belief because maybe it isn't helpful then. Right. And, and I think we can all think of um, family members where religion isn't always affirming and useful for them and maybe even harmful in some cases. Like, I, I think that question of like, when do we just allow them to have their own beliefs and everything's fine and, and realizing that we can't change them by going after the facts of the matter. But like, I don't know. I, I think sometimes that creates a lot of tension for those of us, especially when it comes to kids, right? Like if you have family members who are teaching their children beliefs that you, you just, you just kind of cringe because you know, not even that they're not true, but that, man, that really hurts on some kind of psychological level. Like, the pain of like not being good enough or, um, you know, how shame is used in certain religious contexts. So, um, like, how do we, how do we have those conversations or do we have those conversations? Like, what, what are your thoughts about that, Carolyn? I had a couple of, part of it was triggered before the awesome story about this, uh, something you said about, you know, we don't necessarily want to change people's beliefs. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I really do not the religious beliefs. I don't mm-hmm. care about that. One of my prouder moments, I think in teaching that psycho belief class was that at the end one of the one of my little Mormon girls mm-hmm. um, kind of came up to me and and she'd been pretty quiet throughout mm-hmm. class and you know but she said it's interesting you know I, I just wanted you to know I came to this class and I still have my faith mm-hmm. and I was like great good for yeah, you right. right and she's like but I do think about it differently and mm-hmm. I've had so many interesting conversations with my family right right and I think part of what makes that possible because we're back to this notion of like holding it loosely and Mm -hmm. not it being rigid and that kind of thing is a, she was part of our, we, Mm -hmm. right. She was the, we of our classroom. And if you're not part of the, we, Mm -hmm. then there's so much more room for this us and them mocking kind of stuff. And so this is back to this, you know, Mm -hmm. if we're, if we're making fun of other people, we're missing the point. Mm -hmm. Right. And so the, the, we, if they don't see you as part of the, we, and if you don't see you as part of the, we, you've Mm -hmm. got a problem. Right. Yeah, because then then you do get stuck in the right and they're right, I'm right and they're wrong, or like yeah, this us versus them, and that's really a really great way of of, of explaining that. And and 
and I'm thinking kind of socially though, like groups tend to be, tend to form because there is this us versus them distinction. And so, so, so you're saying like maybe bringing some intention to this process of recognizing how a person who might have very different beliefs than you can still be part of this bigger we and, and how you can see yourself inside of, of their beliefs as well, or, or just being more aware of the process of believing? A couple things. So in that classroom, the things we focus on is group formation and group polarization. Mm, okay. And much like beliefs, there's two different things. I love it. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how a group comes together might just be around a shared interest or whatever. But the second you have a group, and particularly the second you have two groups, mm-hmm. then you get this really recursive, odd loop that makes the groups feel further and further apart and sets up false competition. Is that because they're focusing on the differences? Well, partially it's because of how brains work again. It's mm-hmm. just our default. It's just the thing we do. And it's it's, 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 yeah. it's also, so if we're back to boxes, mm-hmm. we're, we're drawing the lines around the boxes and we're going, oh, no, see, these are two different things. Mm-hmm. And let's start thinking about all the ways these things are different and we forget right. to notice how they're all similar. Yeah. And we, we magnify the differences and all these kind of things happen. And then it, and then it becomes, um, somewhat irrevocably separate. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that's a really important thing to be intentional about if you want to be connected to other humans. Mm -hmm. And if you value that empathy is specifically looking at all the ways we are similar and also just being really mindful of all the ways our brains want to make us pretend like we're different. Yeah. So as you're saying that, I know it's, I think so often we get stuck in the, the, like the beliefs themselves and like, I can't reconcile my way of seeing the world with their way of seeing the world. And my belief about X is different than their belief about X. And so therefore you're saying we should find some way to find our commonalities, but that just feels like you're excusing like these very real differences. And, and I know you're not, I know you're not right. saying that, but, but I think that might be why our brains do that. It's like we, we want to, to see the differences and, and, and that just makes more sense. It's easier, I think, than to see like, Oh, even in our differences, some of these brain processes are the same. And, and maybe just how, like, yeah. I think one step further, which is I think one of the most painful parts of deconversion, mm-hmm. is suddenly the people you love most in the world treating you as other. Yeah. Right? Like, like by default. Almost. And they're doing this to you, and it very much feels like a thing they're doing to you. Okay. Right? Yeah, that's It can. It sure. can, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right? So, if, like, if you feel rejected or suddenly the people you felt closest to now have to defend themselves against mm-hmm. you, or they build up these walls, or there's a little bit of this, like, you know, convert or go away, kind mm-hmm. of, like, come, come back or go away. Right. Kind of feeling then, you know, I think that's probably where the a lot of the biggest pain can be mm-hmm. in terms of the relationships anyway. You know, there's there's other pains. But but if you can see that this is just what we do, mm-hmm. it doesn't lessen the pain, but you can sort of have some empathy for why they're doing it instead of just saying they're being mean to me. Right. right? So, they might also be being mean to you. <laughs> and this is probably why. And We've learned some ways to to circumnavigate that in terms of like a oh, terrible word choice, but mm-hmm. um, to to work around it in terms of nations and things mm-hmm. like that. And we're coming back to like Joshua Green's moral tribes, where he talks about these people will never be the same. Mm-hmm. They have to learn to cooperate as different tribes, 
Right. And, and I think, I think if you know that group polarization happens, it gives you opportunities to do group cohesion-y things. Mm -hmm. So, so I think sometimes I, I hear this a lot in the work that I do around deconversion where like now I know the real person, you know, they never were my friend. They never did care mm -hmm. about me because, you know, if they're going to so quickly write me off when my beliefs change, then, you know, well, they, they never really loved me anyhow kind of feeling. And what you're saying is, no, there's this kind of instinctive process that happens when there are these differences of beliefs. And in some ways, it would be very difficult for your believing family members to not go through that. Now, hopefully they can, you know, go through that in a, in a healthy way where you can maintain relationship, possibly. Right. Um, but, but not just attributing it to, you know, they never really care about me or, or even on their side, like, well, yeah, you never were a true believer. I mean, we get that a lot too. One of my family members went through kind of an ugly breakup last year and went to therapy as part of that. And one of the things that he said he most got out of that was when the other person gets ugly in the course of a breakup, he's kind of always had this thought of, well, now they've shown their true colors. Yeah. And the therapist really just encouraged him to hold that idea lightly and to go, maybe not. Maybe that's just the reaction of a person in pain. Right. And it was just this, yeah. And this group polarization thing is the reaction of a person in pain because just mm -hmm. as much as you feel like, oh, maybe they don't really know me at all if mm -hmm. this is all they care about, they're also thinking, but I've I've known you this way. Right. Why are you different? Different is painful for me. Right. And it's it's really hard, I think, for the deconverter mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. empathize with the pain of the family sometimes. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, or the or the friends or the loved ones or the spouses, but kind of understanding that for them to change their their box of you right. is very uncomfortable too. How how can we help our believing family members and friends with that process? Realizing, I, I think just, it's so beautiful just knowing that that is likely what's going on with them. And now having a concept of, oh, we're asking our family and friends to have a different box for us. And... And I, I think so often I, I hear this um, from people who have deconverted that, well, I'm just the same person. I feel like I'm the same person. I just don't have these kind of beliefs that no longer work for me, but I still, I'm, I'm caring, compassionate, and I, you know, value humanity and relationships, and I love my kids and all those things. And meanwhile, when I was a believer personally, and I know a lot of believers um, have this box for non-believers of they're rebellious and they're just wanting to like go and sin and do all these things and they're, and they're horrible people and they're a threat. Yeah. And, and so, and so then if, if when you leave, um, uh, your believing family members are like, Oh, I have a box for you now. <laughs> it's the, you know, angry atheist. It's the, yeah. you know, um, just I, re I'm re actively rejecting God and like trying to, you know, wanting to live an immoral life or whatever, you know, like, like that in, in some ways that is a box we have because in, inside of a, a belief system, we do have a box for the other. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's by default as well. And so when you go in that box, your family members are like, oh crap, like they're in this box now. And I don't want you to be in that box. And, and so how do we help them realize like, well, no, let's build this new way of understanding me now. And, and right. yeah, I, I, that can be hard when there's rejection. It depends on what the box is too, because if you're talking about like a parent and a child and like that parent suddenly thinks that child is definitely going to hell. Mm -hmm. That's a very different, like not just a threat non-believer, like your, your 
first directive as a parent is to keep your kids safe. And now your kid just put themselves in what you perceive as ultimate peril. That's going to be a little bit of a different journey than a parent who doesn't believe in that version of hell Mm -hmm. and just says like, I'm, yeah, I'm not an angry atheist. Mm -hmm. Don't put me in that box. But if they're still in the fear-based box and so you gotta, you gotta navigate it. And I think in any sort of, there's, there's actually research on this in terms of back to that gender class in terms of like coming out processes. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a pretty, they, we, we teach them differently. There's the phase for the individual and then there's the phase for the family. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's really hard for anybody who I think is doing that coming out process to allow the family, their process mm-hmm. and, and to realize that they're not going to operate in tandem. You're going to be ahead. Yeah. I, I was going to say that, that, that piece of like being so far ahead, like you've already gone through like by the time you you share with a family member that you no no longer believe, you've already read all the books. You've you maybe spent months, years, you know, kind of going through that, and you you're really really clear. Like you've done the work. Mm-hmm. You've you've grieved. You've been angry. You've you know felt all the feelings around this and learned all the things that you want to learn about it. I mean, typically that's explored a little bit about what it means for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Not everything. Yeah, sure. But, yeah. but some of that. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and you drop it off on your family member, like, okay, so here's where I'm at, and they're like, oh, in, in some ways, now they're just starting their process of like, how do I understand you? It's and, ultimately and its own problem. forcible conversion process, right? Yeah, and so, so having some compassion for that because it's like they didn't have a choice, mm-hmm. and we didn't as much as they think we did, right? Yeah, right, but they, you know, may or may not have seen it coming, mm-hmm. right? And so that all of that stuff impacts how they're going to go through that mm. process and, and if they can get there and how they yeah. can get there. And like, yeah, we, it, particularly with parents, we just want them mm-hmm. to accept your kid, love them, do the big thing. It's like, yeah. yeah, part of loving them in their world is probably keeping you from danger. Right. And because they don't know what this is, it certainly is going to feel like danger. So they're going to mm. want to intervene, control, talk you out of it, dismiss it, do something because it sounds awful. So, so would it be helpful just to say up front, like I, I'm going to share information with, I'm going to share something about myself with you. And these might be the responses that you'll have just to kind of acknowledge, like it, it's really common to feel these, these feelings. Like what I, I know there's no right answer. It depends on the, on the situation, but like, are there kind of general principles of how can we, um, as individuals who want to kind of be ourselves and be open with our family members, are there ways of, of having those conversations that are, that are more useful? I think it's super, sorry, dangerous to try to control it. Mm-hmm. I think compassion. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I think, <laughs> I think other people who have coming out stories have a great plan for this. Connect them with other people, right? right? Like we need a PFLAG equipment for, or a equivalent for religious deconversion. You know what's really interesting? <laughs> Someone um, within the Life After God community has just mentioned this recently. Like we have... Like we need this space for uh, believing family members who have who have family members who have left the faith to kind of have support around that. Yeah. Because I think I think that there's we, we yeah we, we fail to to see how difficult that is for them. And we can firmly be clear that we are not the bad guy, and right. that they might also have legitimate suffering. Absolutely. Yeah. And James, I was gonna I was gonna okay, I'll, I'll, I was gonna ask you. Um, if you, if you want to share, I know, um, 
Carolyn and myself, neither of us have gone through this process with a, um, a believing spouse. And so, so often, um, individuals talk about the suffering around this, you know, mixed faith marriage or this, um, like, how do I share, you know, a close relationship with, with someone who I care deeply about and, and the thing that we may have kind of, um, you know, built a relationship around is no longer that, that foundation. As often happens when friends talk about engaging topics, we had more to say than we could fit into a single episode. You will not want to miss part two of our conversation, where we discuss how divergent beliefs impact relationships and offer practical things we can do to support more meaningful connections. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, now is a great time to click subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If this episode resonated with you, we would love to hear your thoughts. Check out Life After God on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at lifeaftergod.org. If you're navigating a deconversion, or if you want a more meaningful life on the other side of religion, I would love to hear from you personally. If you would like to learn more about the work I'm doing to support healthy deconversions, you can visit my website at roomtothrive.com. Check out the show notes for links. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to seeing you next episode. This has been the Life After God podcast. Mm-hmm.